Hey, it's Nathan and Sean again. We want to welcome you back to the 13-week Bible, Season 2. Today we're in Episode 9, ahead of Week 8's reading, as we continue this expansive journey through the Bible in 13 short weeks. We're both thoroughly enjoying our read and hope you're finding it helpful too. Today, we're previewing Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, and the first 10 chapters of Jeremiah. If you've peeked ahead, you'll know that we'll be spending a whole five days in Isaiah alone. It's also worth noting that we're rushing down the other side of our journey ever closer to its conclusion than its beginning. Sean. Nathan. It is good to have you on. How are you? I'm well. How about yourself? Yeah, good. The sun is shining today. It is, uh, as we're recording this podcast, it is a crisp day just before the beginning of December. Mm-hmm. So hopefully by the time this podcast drops, it will be the other side of at least the major part of winter. So Yeah, that's <laughs> Well, I guess it'll drop, uh, let's see, if uh, dropping all through January, it'll be dropping sometime in February. So I suppose this is going to hit in the throes of winter, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. Uh, spring will be not too far ahead uh, when you're listening. So we're hoping that February is treating you well. Yeah. Today we're looking at... Um, Continuing our journey looking again at Ecclesiastes is where we start. Last week, we worked through Psalms, the rest of Psalms, and through Proverbs. Again, two of our favorite books, which is true many times when we talk about Scripture. We have many favorite books at different times in different places. We begin with another of Solomon's books, uh, this one, Ecclesiastes, a uh, rather melancholy reflection by the wise King Solomon on the meaning of life. Then Song of Solomon, uh, depicting a rather juicy romance between Solomon and a beautiful Shulamite woman, probably the most graphic romantic language in the entire collection of biblical text. And then we have a rapid shift from... Uh, this time in Solomon, where he is king during the United Kingdom, we might call it, when Israel was one kingdom. And the next two books in this week's read, Isaiah and Jeremiah, are at a very different time in history. Both Isaiah and Jeremiah come into ministry after the kingdom has been divided for a long time. Unfortunately, neither the wisdom of the early prophets nor the wisdom of Proverbs or Ecclesiastes had been heeded, and so that leaves the people in a very desperate situation. Isaiah is online, uh, beginning with Isaiah in Judah, Jeroboam II of Israel. So Isaiah begins his prophetic ministry before the fall of the northern kingdom referred to as Israel or Ephraim in this read. Though his ministry appears to unfold exclusively in the kingdom of Judah, his ministry does extend into the reign of Manasseh, probably just the early days of Manasseh's reign, and includes the reigns of both Ahaz and Hezekiah. If you want to do a history recap, you can run back to 2 Chronicles 26, uh, somewhere in early Second Chronicles, um, and then 
to early Second uh, Chronicles 33. That would be the historical timeline in which Isaiah ministers. And then we're just getting into Jeremiah. Jeremiah, interestingly, has longer chapters than Isaiah for the most part. We're going to be Jeremiah uh, through Jeremiah 10. A couple of passages there, and then, Sean, I'm going to pull you back into the discussion. Um, so Jeremiah begins with these words, the words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, one of the priests at Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin. The word of the Lord came to him in the 13th year of the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, and through the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, down to the fifth month of the 11th year of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah, when the people of Jerusalem went into exile. Jeremiah's ministry extends from the reign of Josiah through the downfall of the nation of the, the northern kingdom. No, I'm sorry, the nation of Judah. Um, the northern kingdom has already fallen by the time Jeremiah comes on the scene. There are references to the northern kingdom in Jeremiah, um, but those are past tense references, and uh, it is the kingdom of Judah that is facing its end. A couple more lines from second uh, from Scripture before we get into the discussion. Second Chronicles 34 makes this observation. Josiah was eight years old and he became king. Then he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and followed the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. In the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father David. In his twelfth year, the year before Jeremiah's ministry officially begins, in his twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of high places, Asherah poles, and idols. So interesting to notice that's the beginning time frame of the prophetic ministry of Jeremiah. And then one last note, Jeremiah, uh, 2 Chronicles 35. Jeremiah composed laments for Josiah, and to this day all the male and female singers commemorate Josiah in the laments. These became a tradition in Israel and are written in the laments. The reason, by the way, is because Josiah is one of the most faithful kings, which is helpful to keep in mind. Um, in spite of Jeremiah, of Josiah's deep devotion, the people are astonishingly wicked and never recover from the reign of, I believe it's Josiah's grandfather, Manasseh. And so some some really sad history. Let's open the book by jumping back, or this week's discussion, as I should say, by jumping back to Ecclesiastes. Sean, mm -hmm. that was a long introduction. No, Let's good. talk. It was a good introduction because I read these books like a few weeks, maybe a few months back because I'm a little <laughs> ahead of where we're recording. So it was a good refresher for me, for sure. Thank you, Nathan, for that. Yeah, no worries. Some yeah. good, good stuff coming in. So we're in Ecclesiastes. Mm -hmm. uh, what? How would you recap Ecclesiastes in like a sentence or two? Then we can talk in more detail. Well, I'm just curious what your first takeaway is. Yeah, well, I could say, much like I said about Proverbs, is that I didn't used to really like Ecclesiastes. But I'm also, you know, I'm also a person who has tendencies to melancholy as well. So um, <laughs> I appreciate, I've, I've come to a lot greater appreciation of Ecclesiastes, which it has these little pithy expressions that almost come from a cynical perspective. You know, this is presumably mm. 
Solomon who's gone through his life of searching, I guess you could maybe say it, where he is trying to find the meaning of life, trying to trying mm-hmm. to ascertain what brings fulfillment and purpose. And he basically is like, I've tried it all and I didn't I didn't find much to satisfy me. You know, everything's vanity, vanity. That's probably the most famous expression. <laughs> vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Um, you know, he also yeah. talks about how there's nothing new under the sun, that he's seen it all, he's been mm-hmm. through it all. There's nothing that, you know, that would surprise him. Um, so, yeah, Ecclesiastes is sort of a commentary on the, uh, the fleeting and transient nature of life how there's mm. nothing but the eternal you know there's there's a in, in ecclesiastes 3 and again we'll get into the specifics i know but you know basically there's this expression where he says that god has has placed eternity in our hearts mm. and you know this idea that nothing in this world can fully you know to kind of go back to something cs lewis said nothing in this world can truly satisfied it must mean we were created for another world and so that's kind of Mm. the ecclesiastes message from what i what i glean that's good at the same time i texted you that i'm not sure what solomon thinks about the future (laughs) because he's very solomon is very like his conclusion um the end of the book you know except just just kind of not thinking about the last lines of the book mm-hmm. before that his conclusion is basically live life now just live it to the fullest god's created you for this moment created you to to enjoy this moment he's given you things to do and the most meaningful thing to do in life is to be fully engaged in living life today so it's mm-hmm. yeah so i'm not sure what his theology or philosophy yeah. of the of the after death um, or of what happens after the human story ends. I I agree with you a hundred percent. I would not want to place much confidence in my theological conclusions through a reading of Ecclesiastes. If you're trying to build a theology based on Ecclesiastes and maybe there's others who've done it um, and they, you know, no doubt there's people who are much more, well-versed in in this book, but I think it's a very foolish endeavor to try to build much of a theology on Ecclesiastes because it's just, you know, it's poetry, it's wisdom literature, but at the same time, it's, yeah, you're just, you can't put your feet too firmly on on solid Mm -hmm. ground because you're like, okay, is, is Solomon describing a positive outlook here? In other words, is he really describing what he thinks? Or is he setting up straw men that he's going to tear down? <laughs> um, does he really mean what he says? You know, and mm. and kind of what you alluded to is ironic because within our faith community, probably our views of the afterlife um, are like Ecclesiastes is the launching point, is like the like is the proof text par excellence of what happens after you die. And I'm just like, ah, I don't know if this is a great book to kind of start our discussion or even especially end our discussion. Yeah, maybe it it can be a part of the conversation, but I would not want to, to be overly confident that I can prove 
a theology of death based on Ecclesiastes. Hmm. So one of the things we talk a lot, and one of the points of this podcast is to talk about how to treat Scripture. And mm-hmm. I think your observation is really important. I was reminded the other day somewhere, I, I can't attribute it because I don't know who said it in, in the most recent iteration I saw, but Scripture is not a theological textbook. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Scripture is a story. Probably mm-hmm. one of my friends at Arise or Lightbearers is is the one. Great Ministries, by mm-hmm. the way, actually they're they're um, one and the same, I guess, at this point. Um, but anyway, the idea that e- that the books of the Bible do have each writer has a purpose, and being careful as we read the book to keep in mind the author's purpose. There may be some tangential conclusions we can draw from things an author says. You know, if you're reading a biography of somebody, you can sort of pick up pieces that the author wasn't meaning to really focus the book on, but you kind of get these these, um, side insights. And then, um, but then there's the main point of the book. So it's the side insights we have to be kind of careful about, because if that's not the author's point, We've got to be aware that maybe our assumptions about what the author might believe or might be thinking about a side topic are partial. Mm-hmm. And, and I, so I think that's sort of where you're going, Sean, is that um, like the death, the, the afterlife statements in Ecclesiastes, his point is not a conversation about the afterlife, but a conversation about living well now because mm-hmm. it's the living who are fully engaged in life not mm-hmm. the dead. Mm-hmm. And he's mm-hmm. in a culture where there was a high emphasis on like the afterlife. And um, I don't know the Egyptian timeline, but but at some point the Egyptians were burying um, whole servant mm-hmm. suites of servants and officers with the pharaohs because of the idea that the pharaoh and his attendants would actually live on in the afterlife. Solomon's like, hey, when we die, we're just we're, we just go to zero. There's no conscious mm-hmm. engagement in life in this world now. So so don't be obsessed with the future. Live in the present. Mm-hmm. So I find Solomon's book actually Ecclesiastes a fantastic read for, especially a pushback against materialism. He does a lot to say, hey, what are you accumulating all that stuff for? You're going to die and have no use for it. Somebody is mm-hmm. like. The king gets all this power and, and this wealth, and then his foolish son comes along and wastes it. What was the point of that whole um, life spent in accumulation when there's no enjoyment of, mm. of that accumulation? I think that's a great, just a mm. great recalibration for us in the West to place so much emphasis on nice houses and nice stuff. All of us need to say, wait a minute, what in the world am I doing with my time? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's Ecclesiastes. That's the big question of Ecclesiastes. Well, I think ironically... Go ahead. Go for it. No, I was going to say, ironically, I think the same point is made by Jesus coming later, um, playing off questions of death. But he, defi- he, he has a different take on the afterlife when it comes to like the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. So... You know, if we were to take Ecclesiastes and the parable of the rich man and Lazarus as as explicit, systematic 
explanations of what happens after you die, they would be polar opposites because, hmm. because hmm. you know, Ecclesiastes says the dead know nothing. Jesus comes along and says, hey, there's a rich man who died and he was in the bosom of Abraham and, you know, all the stuff. But that's not the point of Ecclesiastes. That's not mm -hmm. the point of Jesus' parable. The point is, as you said, what are you doing in this life, right? Because, yeah. you know, the yeah. rich man had squandered his his wealth on himself instead of helping other people mm. where, you know, again, Solomon is trying to tell us to, to make the most of this life and to, mm -hmm. um, you know, even, you know, this is where we get the expression, you know, eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. Right. It's like, okay, we right. tend to think of that as a, as a, as a wrong way of thinking, but Solomon kind of is like, you know, make the most of it, you know, make the best right, of your life right. now. That said, he 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 did say that that um, basically wise people prefer funerals to parties mm. Mm. because funerals have a way of refocusing, mm -hmm. keeping us grounded. That parties can kind of leave us sort of forgetting about life and being careless. And he's like, mm -hmm. actually, it's the funeral that helps you kind of stay mm -hmm. focused mm -hmm. on what mm -hmm. matters in mm -hmm. life. Mm -hmm. So I have a question for you. Yeah. What, how would you define meaning mm. um, as you see Solomon kind of understanding, as, as you think through the book of Ecclesiastes, what do you think Solomon has in mind when he thinks about what is meaningful? Mm. Well, can I cheat and just kind of point to the last verse That's of, the, of the book? <laughs> I mean, he says, I think in the last verse of the book, the book or last two verses let let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter fear god and keep his commandments for this is man's all mm. for god will bring every work into judgment including every circuit thing whether good or evil i do think you can build a theology mm. out of that by the way that like <laughs> yes. there's going to be an inspection of your work and uh yeah. god's going to even bring the secret things into judgment so mm. this is not to promote a fear-based or shame-based religious approach, but just to point out the reality that, yes, we should make the most of this life, but it does have eternal an eternal context that hmm. our work, hmm. our work, our efforts, our, our lives will have eternal effect. And so meaning, mm -hmm. meaning I think, uh, comes via our... Are the degree to which we align with God's eternal purposes, God's eternal rhythms and and life, you know, law, uh, if you will, like you mm -hmm. know, He says, keep His commandments. This is man's all. So, so the degree to which we align ourselves with the design of the uh, of God's moral universe, I think, is the degree mm -hmm. to which we can experience meaning in this life. Yeah, I think that's a great observation, and it's in line with what we've seen, that Scripture is very focused on, um, and I would say concretely focused on how we live, like our moral interactions with fellow human beings. That's like a very, it's a central piece to to human, to the human story is concretely, not philosophical what we believe, not theological what we believe, even though those things have an impact, but concretely 
how am I interacting with and responding to my fellow human beings and how am I concretely interacting, responding to, um, to God? Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely. Good. All right. So we got to move on, but before yeah. uh, we move out of Ecclesiastes, I wanted to just mention one of my favorite passages is in seven and it says, Solomon says, do not be over-righteous, neither mm. be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Do not be over-wicked and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? Mm. I just think it's a fascinating where, where Solomon specifically calls out extremes. He's not advocating for actual immorality, but he is saying, listen, don't be so consumed in... in, in um, in being super wise, super righteous, that you're impractical, sort of the saying is mm-hmm. too too heavenly minded. Mm-hmm. This is this is the kind of the extreme head in the clouds thing. And someone's saying, listen, don't get carried away on one side and don't throw your throw your life away in evil either. Uh, and so his conclusion is do not uh let's see, it is good to grasp the one that's doing good and not let go of the other. Whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. That's the bottom line is this call to not be extreme. And I, mm. I just love that, <laughs> those words from, from Ecclesiastes. Mm-hmm. Very good. So Song of Solomon, I have no <laughs> notes for Song of Solomon. It is a <laughs> well, steamy... <laughs> you are in luck. Because... It is a steamy book. You are in luck because at one point I was intending to study the Song of Solomon for a potentially a PhD in Old Testament studies. So I know everything right. about the Song of Solomon. No, I'm just kidding. Good, good. A, Let's hear it. Let's it's hear been a while. It. I, I don't know much. I'm just being a... I, I was <laughs> going to study it, though, for PH, my PhD work. But, okay. Um, no, it's, a, it's an amazing, <laughs> amazing book that, of course, doesn't talk about God anywhere. Um, there, there is one occasion where it kind of uses the Hebrew word Yah, shortened for Yahweh, which makes, you know, has some allusion to, to God. But it's basically, to put it in these terms, it's a secular romance poem, really. I mean, that's what it is to a large extent, which has caused people to scratch their heads throughout ever mm. since it was read. Um, one Hebrew rabbi, Jewish rabbi, however, described Song of Solomon as the Holy of Holies when it comes to mm. the Hebrew Bible, like it's the the, the 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 throne room of God, so to speak. Um, and so p- many people have interpreted it differently, you know, uh, throughout the Middle Ages, throughout church history, they want to overly allegorize it and just you know, remove any sensual, sexual connotation, be like, oh, this is just describing the relationship between God and his people. Um, Of course, I think many of us uh, think maybe it it kind of can have a literal meaning as well as a typological, like it's both, like Mm -hmm. it's it's extolling the virtues of of beautiful, innocent love. Um, Mm -hmm. That being said, there's complicating interpretive problems um, you know, you said this is a, a story between Solomon and the Shulamite. You know, many think that it's 
many scholars think it's not even talking about Solomon. Many say it's not written by Solomon, mm. you know, et cetera, et cetera. We won't go into all those details, but um, at the very least, I would say it does, it does, um, it does legitimize, I believe, the beauty of sexuality for its own sake. It doesn't mm-hmm. have to have some deeper theological connection like many of the, mm-hmm. again, the theologians in the Middle Ages believe like, oh my goodness, we have to sanctify it by saying it. it's pointing to God. Um, romance, sex, you know, these things are legitimate in their own right. And it's just, mm-hmm. I think, praising the virtues of of beautiful relationship between man and woman. Hmm. That's good. And that's where we'll leave Song of Solomon. <laughs> I, I will say that when I was an undergrad at, at Andrews University, my, uh, my undergrad teacher in Old Testament, he with no hint of irony said that um, you are not allowed to read the Song of Solomon unless you are married. And of course, mm. that uh, that encouraged me to run home to my dorm as quickly as I could to read it. So he, <laughs> I don't know if he was using reverse psychology to get get you to read it, but um, yeah, there there have been restrictions on the Song of Solomon in various mm. religious communities because of the graphic nature of it. Yes, yeah, quite a book, and I would agree that there, I, I think it is within the within wise treatment of scripture to assume some allegorical application of Hmm. the text. I think that's a fair use of the text. I'm not persuaded that that's necessarily the point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think that's sort of up for grabs. What's interesting, and maybe the reader can just have their eye out for this, but one interesting angle from which to come at the Song of Solomon is that there is a lot of terminology that seems to be taken from the sanctuary and so Hmm. it is almost to some degree on some level it is maybe pointing you know again that jewish rabbi had talked about it's the holy of holies um there is maybe some typological connection there between the sanctuary the temple and you know this idea of of love so just keep your eye out for that Yes, so sounds like I need to be watching for that more next time I go through mm-hmm. the book. So we are in Isaiah now, mm. uh, in a, an, a big book, 66 chapters, and you'll read the whole book again. It'll take about five of this week's reading days just for Isaiah. And um, wow, what are your <laughs> first thoughts on Isaiah? Well, many people have noted that Isaiah is like the fifth gospel almost, like it's the Old Testament Mm. gospel book. And I think that's certainly one reading of it that, you know, obviously a lot of messianic prophecies come from the book of Isaiah, especially, Mm -hmm. you know, the latter part of it, Um, but even even the earlier parts of it as well. Um, And, you know, many people have kind of made divisions between different sections of Isaiah. Um, Certainly the first half uh, spends a lot of time critiquing Judah and and its sin and and unrighteousness. And then, you know, there are other parts where it's critiquing other nations. Um, And Mm -hmm. then, and then the, you know, beginning 
mostly in chapter 40, it definitely points now to the Messiah and his work of, mm-hmm. of salvation and deliverance. And so those are maybe some of the broad, you know, bird's eye view look at, at the book. Yep. And I think we'll focus our discussion probably leaning towards, at least my heart wants to lean towards Isaiah 40 and on. Um, mm-hmm. I do want to just note from this one line, Isaiah 5, uh, first chapter, your hands are full of blood. Mm. Um, just um, that that God has, again, this very practical concern. It's, it's not high in the sky. It's very practical. You are behaving horribly toward the people around you. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, the blood mm-hmm. was both just just cruelty, but also included the offering of children in sacrificial rituals. Mm-hmm. And exploiting, so, exploiting the poor and, you know, not right, exactly. caring for the widowed yep. and orphans. And yeah, yep. you know, God says, your worship is meaningless to me. I, mm-hmm. I can't even hear your prayers because you are holding up your hands to pray to me. But as you said, Nathan, they're, they're full of blood. And so it's like the ultimate uh, religious hypocrisy. And God, yes. quite frankly, has no interest in, in our worship if it is not expressed through works of justice and righteousness and care yes. for, for the less fortunate. Exactly. And and again, that's where it comes down to the idea that this is not, that Scripture is not consumed with the abstract processing of theological or philosophical ideas, but is centered around the very practical reality of how do we treat the people around us? And um, so just a couple notes on that. As you mentioned, uh, this is 24, the earth is defiled by its people. They have disobeyed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse consumes the earth. Its people must bear their guilt. Therefore, earth's inhabitants are burned up and very few are left. So this is a conversation we've had before about the idea of God of sort of is God imposing consequences for evil or are human beings reaping the consequences of their actions? And I think this Isaiah 24 passage really points toward God stepping out of the picture and saying, okay, you have loaded the train. Now I'm going to stop holding it back. And the, the actions you've done, you're going to have the opportunity now of experiencing the weight at least the partial weight of those actions crashing down on you. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a fantastic point, Nathan. You know, of course, you know, not to get too far off field here, but just from a theological perspective, it's, I think there's a sense in which it's a both and, um, you know, God's, mm. God's justice is God's protection as well. Like yeah. sometimes yeah. he has to step in and more, you know, directly, um, yes. Act, but yeah, I think it's a it's a yes. it's a fantastic point. It's not it's not an arbitrary imposed right. justice, right? Either way, it's like it's it's not God just making up the rules as He goes. Right. It's yeah. There's a there's a 
implicit and sometimes explicit denigration of life when we act hmm. in, and act outside of God's design for the universe. Yeah. And so God yep. has a vested interest in making sure that he honors and preserves life. And that's, you know, mm -hmm. that's where his, his uh, justice comes in. Yep. And, and yeah, it's a great point that both are present. Um, one, God's action, especially to sort of, to preserve human beings from ultimate consequences, ultimate impact before they've had a time to learn and grow and and think through their actions. And so there's a preservative impact as well in God's mm -hmm. in God's work. Yeah, and even, you know, not to get ahead of ourselves, but even the great greatest messianic prophecy, Isaiah fifty three, you know, there you know one of the passages I just can't get around is that it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Like you know, mm. that that's an externally imposed action it seems and um mm. you know how do we but anyway we can get into that a little later but yeah so we're heading that direction i do want to point out a little late but just observe that both isaiah and jeremiah have very distinct calls to prophetic ministry mm. isaiah's call is in chapter six Jeremiah's call is in the first chapter, but both of them have rather dramatic calls, very specific calls to their, what, as far as we can tell, is for both of them a lifelong vocation as a, a lifelong primary vocation as a prophetic voice. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And, and I, yeah, well, maybe I'm resisting making a, a point here about, you know, the famous uh jeremiah passage of before i formed you in the womb i knew you um we probably should just let that passage sit without trying to make political <laughs> statements but well, we can I, maybe touch on that in jeremiah well we'll get there we'll get there um so uh isaiah 14 a great passage to slow down for um in that passage kind of the veil is pulled back from the human story and we see the mm. demonic, um, specifically Satan, kind of see a glimpse of, of his work and his origins. So that's a super insightful chapter, not one we can process more here, but um, one that's worth thinking about and observing um, some helpful things about the human story mm. and mm the way life is here on earth, that chapter helps to explain pieces of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, let's go to 40. I think, um, <laughs> I think 40 is, I think we're ready to go to 40. I guess before that, there's uh, this line, one sentence, chapter 32, the fruit of that, the, excuse me, the fruit of that righteousness will be peace. It's effect mm. will be quietness and confidence forever. Mm. For me, it just contrasts between the instability, the non-sustainability of evil and the sustainable reality that is the result of righteousness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. 
So then uh, before we get to 40, there are some um, specific chapters uh, related to Hezekiah and his struggle with Sennacherib. And then we get into Isaiah 40. And I'm going to, Sean, I'm going to give you the first chance to take sure. a crack at Isaiah 40 and on. But um, Oh, man. Wow. That's what a so privilege, curious. Nathan. Well, I mean, there's so much. I, I It's, you know, Isaiah 40 through 66. I mean, in some ways, I know this is an overstatement, but it feels like if, I, if that's all you had, like, and you didn't have anything else from the Bible, like, I feel like hmm. you would have enough to help you understand what God is trying to do in this world, in the universe, with his people. Hmm. Um, you, know, you certainly get the gospel all throughout these passages. And you basically have, yes. you know, uh, a, a, an implicit and often explicit explanation about the human condition you know, uh, where, mm. where we are in our iniquity. Um, and, and yet even right from the beginning of Isaiah 40, it talks about how Israel's iniquity was pardoned. Um, and, mm. and, you know, so we see the gospel right there from the get go. Um, but then we, yeah, we have the ongoing explanation about this Messiah that is, coming um and you know there's been debate many uh would interpret you know certainly a lot of our jewish brothers and sisters have interpreted the messiah not to be the singular individual but to be really talking about israel as a whole and um mm. and it does like some chapters go back and forth you're like okay is he, is he is isaiah talking about israel here or is he talking about this singular Messiah figure, and you're not quite sure. And that's probably because it's purposely ambiguous because hmm. the Messiah, you know, all of God's people are summed up in the Messiah. Like what is true hmm. of Messiah? And when we say the term mm -hmm. Messiah, of course, we need to explain for those who may not know, because the term is not directly used in the passage, but the Messiah is the anointed one, the chosen one. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So yeah, what is true of the Messiah is true of of the, God's people. So um, mm. when the Messiah comes and gives of himself, he is acting as Israel when he does that. Um, and and so so that's you know that's one important part of it. And of course, again, Isaiah fifty three, the beautiful exposition on the the sacrifice, the death of the Messiah, um, not only mm. on behalf of but as as Israel. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, I think kind of from, from there, and I'm sure you will want to spend a little time on this Isaiah 58, Nathan, if I know anything about you. Um, but yes. that, that latter part of this section kind of focuses on the reality of, of, of what God's Messiah people look like in their, in their living, um, mm. you know, and the promise of, of these Messiah people living out the reality of God's love, sacrificial love, draws people mm -hmm. to them, and then it mm -hmm. and, and then it pushes them out into the world to mm -hmm. to address the real needs that the mm -hmm. world has. Um, 
So again, yeah. we uh, I, I don't want to steal your thunder on that part, but no, it's good. That's, that's what I see as this beautiful, you know, the Gentiles will come, they'll see the light mm-hmm. and they will be drawn to it. And, um, you know, and, and as you live lives of true devotion and fasting, you will be, you know, uh, liberating people from their bonds of, of oppression and so forth. So anyway, that's, that's what yeah. I see. That's good. That's good. So I'm going to go all the way back to chapter 40. Chapter 40 for me is a fascinating chapter. Um, You'll read several times Isaiah, God really trying to differentiate himself between um, the idols of the nations and, and reinforce that he's the living God. There is literally, literally no one like God. It doesn't matter what you say about these foreign gods of whatever nation you 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 would go to, there's literally no competition in the God space. That competition is only in our heads, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that was actually, for me, that was, an, it felt like something of a, a new level of insight there, just, just kind of um, seeing kind of a fresh angle, this idea that you know, on the human level, we we do kind of see competition in air quotes um, that there are these alternatives. But the truth is, there is only one living God. There's only one creator. There's only one being who knows the future before it happens. There is zero competition. And I think that it's helpful to keep in mind as we look at the story of Scripture that God is not God is not in a pantheon, one God pushing back against the other. He's it. And the mess is on earth. There is a rebel angel, but he's also created being uh, more powerful, the demonic forces more powerful than us, but not on a God level. They're, they're much, they're, they are um, almost indistinguishable from us if we're taking God in the picture, if we're comparing us and God, and God, angels are probably virtually indistinguishable from us as far as, as far as, um, distance in, in capacity and, and, mm-hmm. and being, et cetera. In comparison so, to God. And right. So that's just mm-hmm. something, just a really important piece to keep in mind again, that there is, it, there is only one God. He's trying to mm-hmm cut through the noise mm-hmm. well that you know a couple things there i mean that of course lines up with everything we've been reading throughout the hebrew scriptures where you know mm. god is trying constantly to establish his singular supremacy and that's mm. why he's you know when when children of israel go into the land of canaan the promised land like wipe out all the other gods like tear down the altars, do that all, you know, because he's trying to establish his singular supremacy. And again, as we've talked about before, he's not doing that because he has an ego. He's not doing it because he's insecure. He is doing that for their own good, for our own good, because we see throughout the Hebrew scriptures, the, the, utterly dire consequences of not mm-hmm. recognizing the reality of God's singular supremacy. 
so so that's one thing I think we can see. Um, I think also it sets us up for the astounding nature of what you know we call and you and I are coming into this season as we're recording this into the incarnation that there is a singular God and we skipped Mm -hmm. over it. But prior to it's where we get that amazing idea that God with us, Emmanuel, this is Mm -hmm. comes in the, Mm -hmm. in the the first half of the book that there will be a, the virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son and his name shall be Emmanuel God with Mm -hmm. us. Like the Mm -hmm. idea that God is unequaled and yet God Mm -hmm. willingly chose, to mm-hmm. come and be born of a sinful woman is just, mm-hmm. you know, we can't appreciate the full extent of God's humanity unless we first mm. understand the amazing, astounding nature of his utter incomparability. So that's an amazing mm-hmm. distinction there. Yes, and my mind was going not to the incarnation, but just to this idea that this this divine being, which we understand from d- different parts of Scripture, is is three beings who are one in in um, much of what is a mystery to us. Um, the power, the foreknowledge, the creative capacity, and yet the fact that this being is still in conversation with, mm. still patiently working with human beings who are stupid. In fact, Isaiah 48, I think, <laughs> yeah. calls them stupid. Yeah. Like, how can you how can you cut a tree down, make your breakfast with it, make your shovel with it, make your house with it, and then make part of it a God that you think is somehow supernaturally intervening in your life? Who is not thinking here? That's nonsense. Mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. That's basically mm-hmm. my summary of Isaiah 40. Yeah. Um, Anyway, well, well, I mean, we do you, have to move on. Look, but at, go look, for at, it. look at the first chapter. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's <laughs> crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not consider. They don't right. like even dumb animals know what's up and what's down. And right. like these people, yeah. but yet God continues to labor with us in his love and to yeah. the point where he will send, you know, God himself will become one of us because that's how committed in covenant he mm-hmm. is with us. And, you know, there's mm-hmm. no plan B. There's no plan B with God. They're like, we no are, we are the plan. Yep. So yeah, 52 through 66, quite a piece mm-hmm. of scripture. I, what I call some of this and Shai, I'd love your feedback is the divine vision. There is, we pick up on this idea of the, ultimate dream of God for his people to be restored, mm. to live long in the land, to live long lives where a kid a hundred years old is, you know, and I forget the exact language, but it's language, something like that in Isaiah 65, 66, mm-hmm. where you get this picture of a restored planet. We, we don't, that's not fully developed. Again, it's almost like some of this is in embryonic stages, like you were talking about the Messiah language, there's this, this vision is beginning to, or I wouldn't say it's just beginning. There's pieces of this previously, but this vision is gaining steam of a planet that is 
beyond the, the destructive force of evil of a settled, civilized world. That uh, vision culminates in Revelation, but there's these pieces of it. So Isaiah 65, 66, fascinating reference to a new earth, reference to um, inhabiting the land without any threat of marauding, invading armies coming in to steal it. Um, so just some beautiful stuff to pay attention to as you look. Again, this vision, Daniel picks it up. Revelation kind of, again, culminates that. But this vision that evil, God's like, I'm, we're going to get through this. Messiah's coming. I'm committed to this. Even a reference, I think it's Isaiah 52. 52, 54, one of those two. To Noah, 54, Isaiah 54. To Noah and the flood. And God saying, listen, as committed as I was to no more floodwaters, I'm that committed to seeing this redemptive project fully through. Mm, beautiful. I love that. I love that. I could I could riff on that, but I know our time is short, but it's it's just a beautiful Yeah, Jeremiah. Picture. Jeremiah. It is. Jeremiah. Yeah. Nathan, you Jeremiah. didn't even get to talk about your favorite chapter. I'm sorry, Isaiah 15. No. I apologize. No, it's Nathan. fine. Just know that no, 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 here, know that Nathan loves Isaiah 58. I do as well. And there's uh, someone that we both greatly admire who has said that Isaiah 58 is basically the the mission statement of of God's people hmm. at this time in Earth's history. So we'll leave it at that. But it's it's a beautiful chapter. And I think Sean and I would both agree with that statement. We would. Um, yeah. It is. Yeah. Read it through. It's it's um, it's pretty in your face. Uh, both anciently and uh, in modern times. Um, again, right along the lines of the scriptures are not stuck in the clouds. They're very much about God saying human beings were made to love well. Mm. And the point of everything I want you to do is to become somebody who loves like I love. Mm. And that's Beautiful. kind of the core piece of Isaiah 58. So Beautiful. Anyway, you'll have to enjoy it in your reading, and uh, maybe there'll be a podcast in the future on Isaiah 58. A friend and I, a couple of friends, I think, are going to work on that one. So Nice. Nice. Yeah. Maybe Sean. Maybe maybe we'll have Sean. Well, I don't know. Next. I said you said a friend, and I guess you know maybe I'm not one of those. No, I've I'm, got I'm, several I'm, friends. So. You have more than just me as a friend, Nathan. Wow. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, that's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, so as Jeremiah, we just get into Jeremiah, keeping in mind that Jeremiah and Isaiah are not contemporaries. Isaiah is likely murdered during the early days of Manasseh's reign, and Jeremiah begins his ministry 13 years into the grandson of Manasseh, who is Josiah, one of, if not my favorite king in the entire list of kings of either the United Kingdom, or the divided kingdoms of the people of Israel. Um, hard, hard not to like Josiah for many different reasons. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's the starting place of Jeremiah's reign. What's interesting to me is that when you go back to the Chronicles, it recounts Josiah as being an amazing reformer. When you read Jeremiah, it's very clear that very clear that what he did was not getting through to the people, mm -hmm. which just speaks um, to the you know long term 
destructive nature of bad leadership that even yep. a strong leader can't counteract, you know, that when right. when you're too far down the road, it's really hard to, you can make gains, but, you know, those gains are nothing in comparison to years and years and years and years of bad leadership. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Of course, Jeremiah. We'll see in... Go ahead. Go ahead, Nathan. No, no, you go. I was just going to say, you'll you'll notice in Jeremiah this reference, which is actually heartbreaking, of God re, ref, speaking to Israel from the perspective of a wife, uh, I'm sorry, a husband whose wife is unfaithful. Mm-hmm. And talking about Israel, uh, here's one line. Have you seen what fickle Israel has done? Like a wife who commits adultery, Israel has worshipped other gods on every hill and under mm-hmm. every green tree. Mm-hmm. Mm. Just awful. Of course, Jeremiah, I was going to say, is often known as the weeping prophet, you know, mm-hmm. and of course, we're going to get into lamentations later as well. But, you know, Jeremiah 9, 1, oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain mm. of tears that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. So there's just so much mm. pathos and emotion that is coming out of Jeremiah's pen as he thinks about the reality of of God's people and um I know it's just yeah it's an interesting reflection for our own times and what is it that moves me about the reality mm. of God's people today um you mm. know we could again we could go off on that but um yeah it's just there's you know, and this is a bigger question as well, Nathan, but like these were God's chosen people. And, hmm. you know, all of this assumes that there is a sense in which God does call specific people, specific groups mm-hmm. of people. And that's why mm-hmm. it's so upsetting to Jeremiah, because these are the chosen people who are not acting according to God's principles of love. Um, but. Anyway, that's a that's a very interesting conversation in and of itself. Could be interesting to take another just another season and just follow that theme of of chosen people would be kind of interesting mm. to explore the text just looking at that singular theme. Mm-hmm. You were mentioning um I don't remember exactly what you just said talking about. Was I Jeremiah 9 Re- refresh my mind on that? Um, just about the weeping, the weeping part. Yes, the weeping. Yes, the weeping part. So in in sort of in light of that, here are these words earlier in the book. Oh, Israel, my faithless people, come home to me again, for I am merciful. Mm. I will not be angry with you forever. So there is the side of, of God just with call after call after call to his people, come back. Don't do that. You're 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 being foolish and stupid and and um mm-hmm. and yet this longing of God's heart saying listen come back mm-hmm. i'm not going to be angry forever i really want you back i want to restore mm-hmm. you i want mm-hmm. the best for you and so you see that coming out even as there's strong language of coming destruction of mm-hmm. of armies coming in and devastating the people and just the unfolding of the 
kind of the evil trajectory that, that the people of Israel have taken, it's going to bear fruit. Even in the midst of that, God's saying, listen, come back. Mm-hmm. I want you back. It, it, it raises, take it from a little different angle as well. I mean, it, it points to a larger question as well about God's anger. Because he says, I won't, mm. I won't be angry with you forever, which necessarily means that he is angry <laughs> on some level. And is that, you know, is that appropriate? Is that inappropriate? How do we feel mm. about God's anger? Because um, that's definitely a common theme throughout. You know, yes, there's mercy, but that is that is contrasted with a reality of his anger. And, um, mm. you know, we can develop that theme more in the future. But I, I would just submit here very quickly that I would be probably very uncomfortable with and and not excited about a god who didn't get angry um so i uh i i i've heard expressed one way that because god is love god get god gets angry and when you know again we could probably we should probably return to that in the future because we don't want to we don't want to leave people scared at the end of this episode but um anger is a very important part of Hmm. the of God's reality and it's an appropriate part of our reality when directed in healthy ways and when inspired by appropriate conditions. We'll put it that way. Well, I mean, look at the beginning of the book. We'll kind of wrap up with this one. The, was that line in, uh, see if I can get back to my notes here, that line from, I guess it was Isaiah where Mm -hmm. Isaiah said, um, and I think Jeremiah has has lines like this as well. But Isaiah says, "The streets, uh, your hands are mm-hmm. full of blood." There's <laughs> no way that God, that a God who loves so much that He would Himself come down and join the human family for the purpose of redemption and restoration. There's no chance that that God could look at other human beings being cruel to fellow human beings or animals Mm. and not be stirred to the depths of his being. Mm -hmm. And so for us to imagine that God could look on the the horrors of the human story without disgust and anger as part of his response would be for us to say that he's not a God of love. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well put. Well put. And that's it for this week's episode. Enjoy your reading of Isaiah and getting into the first of Jeremiah, of course, after you finish Ecclesiastes and the exciting lines of Song of Solomon. (laughs) And uh, we hope that you are seeing more of God's love through this story. God bless you. See. Experience. Live. Loveshaped.life